Welcome to the Jumpstart Your Faith podcast channel, where you will receive the essential tools to take your faith to the next level. I am your host, Brian Ratliff, and I currently pastor Clearbrook Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. Here is the latest message preached from one of our services. Grab your Bible, pen, notepad, and get ready to jumpstart your faith. In Acts chapter 19, we read the Apostle Paul is on his second missionary journey, and he arrives to the little town or the city called Ephesus. And while he's there, he begins to talk to some of these ones about the Word of God, and he begins to ask them, have you, have you received the Holy Spirit? And they said, we don't even, we don't, we've never even heard of this Holy Spirit that you're speaking of. And so he began to elaborate some more, and, and he prays over them, and he baptizes them, and they receive the Holy Spirit of God, and they begin to go and preach God's word. And at first, they go into the synagogue, and the Bible says that they went to that place three months, and they went in, not to, not to hear what they were having to say, but to go in and share the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. And after three months of them hearing they finally didn't want it anymore so they they left and they go to a school the bible calls tyrannus and there they go in and they share the same thing they elaborate about the word of god and the gospel of jesus christ and in fact in this scene in this time of the early church in acts chapter 19 we read that god was at work and he was and let me just tell you something when god is on the move ain't nobody gonna stop him and we see that, that in that passage that, that the Holy Spirit of God was all over the Apostle Paul. What a mighty man he was. And he was just walking around. People were touching his garments and his handkerchiefs, and people were being healed. And people were getting right with God in a mighty way. And we see that as he was going on and preaching Jesus and, and healing those who were sick, God was using him to do such a mighty task in that time. And then as, as he was preaching, he was casting out demonic spirits. And some of these exorcists in Acts chapter 19, we read that they come and they try to mimic what Paul was doing. And they try to, to share in the name of Jesus and cast out some of these demonic spirits, but they could not do it. In fact, we read that, that they summed up some words, and it said, hey, we know Paul, we know Jesus, but we don't know you. And we find at, at, at the end of all of those things that many of those people who believed in all of those what we call magic or those arts of darkness, they, they repented of all that stuff, and they brought all of their belongings, their books, and all their resources, and they burned it. And the Bible says that the amount that they burned come to about 50,000 pieces of silver. And in Acts chapter 19, the Bible says, so mightily grew the word of God. Souls were being saved. People were being healed. People who were possessed by demons, no longer the demons were in their lives anymore. And, and people were getting right with God. And remember, one preacher said, when God is working, the devil is always fighting. And so as a result of, of the Apostle Paul, and by the way, he was in this city for two years, the Bible says, and we believe that the church of Ephesus was birthed out of the result of Paul's ministry of that time in Acts chapter 19. And we see that as a result of him preaching God's word, as a result of him preaching the gospel and these people getting right with God, we see that, that they began to 
Turn away from these shrines. Turn away from these pagan gods and worshiping these false deities. And as a result, these silversmiths, these, these, these people, these blacksmiths, they were the ones responsible for crafting these gods that could be held by your hands and making these houses of worship called shrines. We see that they began to notice that people were no longer showing up to worship God, these gods. People were no longer buying their resources And so they were a little angry, as you could say. And they began to gather a a huge amount of people together at what what is called a a great temple. We'll talk about that in just a second. And and they began to say, hey, 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 listen, this Paul, he's, he's turning our world upside down. He's preaching about this guy named Jesus. And listen, our wallets are not being stuffed with money anymore. So let's let's bring this Paul and let's put him to death. And so they dragged the apostle Paul and some of the others to this great temple. And we see. That in the midst of all this, for two hours, the Bible says, they were shouting these words. Great is the goddess of Diana. Or great is Diana, the God of the Ephesians. Great is Diana, the God of the Ephesians. And finally, the uproar is silenced. And we see that the church of Ephesus is not only found in Acts chapter 19, but it's found in Revelation chapter 2. And in Revelation chapter 2, I want you to understand this, that in order to properly understand what's going on here in in Revelation 2, we need to understand the history in Acts chapter 19. That's why I shared that with you. And what is the main message that we can glean from the church of Ephesus? Well, it's two words. Two words that I want to label as the key thought for today. Love God. Love God. Love God. I got a two-word message, Brother Andrews. Love God. We could literally close up the Bible, say the ending prayer, and go away. So you wish. (laughs) As we elaborate on that thought, here's another key thought that I would like to share with you. Perhaps this could be the sermon title as we think about the Church of Ephesus. The Church of Ephesus was strong in doctrine, but weak in love. The church of Ephesus was strong in doctrine, but weak in love. By the way, food for thought, Ephesus was the capital city of a Roman province in Asia Minor. It was a significant center of trade and commerce located in right on the border or right on the shore of the Aegean Sea, western of the Asia Minor region. The city lay in a long, fertile valley, and major roads connected this city to all of the other significant city in that region of the world. And by the way, Ephesus was known for their great amphitheater. That is, the world at the time, it was the the largest theater in the world designed. I've read different sources say, some say 25,000, some say up to 50,000 people could sit in this magnificent theater. And this was the temple, the location of the temple of Diana or Artemis, built in 550 BC. And we read about the seven wonders of the ancient world. We read about the great pyramids. But one of the seven, one of the, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world is this temple that we read in Acts chapter 19, and it's kind of being referred to in Revelation chapter 2. It was 425 feet long, 220 feet wide. And it had 127 pillars which supported the roof, which was 60 foot high. 
craftsmen sold shrines and household images of the goddess that worshipers could take with them on their long journeys. And the Ephesians were very proud of their religious heritage and the accompanying legends of their culture. Today, I want to zoom in and focus on this church because it's a message for us all today. And just before we dive into here, I want you to understand this, that there's three ways to understand the seven churches of chapter 2 and chapter 3. You have one historical, that is the historical fashion. Of course, we believe these were historical churches. All of these churches literally existed in time past in the early church. And we read about most of them, or many of them, in the book of Acts. And we see them here in, in Revelation chapter 2. Another way to, to view this, these, these, these churches is in a prophetic way. That, that as, as this book is, is given to prophecy, that some commentators have come to this chapter in chapter 3 and said that each of these churches represents a period of time in church history. And some have, would say that this church would represent the apostolic church or the early church, and we would go on to, to the Laodicean church to represent the church of today, the, the apostate church. Now, sometimes that fits nicely and sometimes it doesn't, so I would not be very dogmatic in that view if I were you. And the other view is the view that I would hold to in addition to the historical view, and that is the representative fashion of these churches, that each of these churches represent all churches of the church age. And we see here, this is the church that was mighty in doctrine, strong in doctrine, but weak in love. Today, I want to share with you five spiritual lessons we can glean from this church because just as this church received this letter for their day I believe that it's been preserved for us to glean and learn from in our day as well before we get into these lessons let's look at verse one the bible says unto the angel of the church of Ephesus now this word angel could be rendered three different ways so we are told by the commentators angel like we think of a messenger, and that's all what an angel means, this word means. And some have rendered this word as a pastor. I don't think we can be ultimately dogmatic if it's a pastor or necessarily an angel like we think of an angel. I would be dogmatic that whatever this angel was, it was a messenger sent from God to deliver this letter to this church. And we see, it says, These things saith he that holds the seven stars in his right hand, a reference to Jesus Christ here. And he walks in the middle of the seven golden candlesticks. Understand that this church, this, this church was in a city of about 250,000 people. This, this church was, was birthed from Acts chapter 19, and we see that this was one of the larger churches of the day. Perhaps maybe even thousands of people were members of this church. And it was in a primitive stage. They didn't, have, they didn't have a large facility like we would have today in our, our age. Perhaps they met outside. Perhaps they met in houses. Our minds can only speculate what they did. But what we know is this church was a larger church. And it was the mother church to all the other churches in the area of that culture. Now that being said. As we will see in many of the cases of these churches, there's always a message of commendation or a message of praise. There's always a message of condemnation or rebuke. And then there's always a message of correction, and that is to reprove and return back to the Lord in a certain area. And I want to zoom in and focus on these few verses here this morning 
and share with you five lessons that I have wrote down that I want to share with you. But, but perhaps we could, we could transfer them, not just lessons, but we can make them declarations and creeds. That as we look at this church and we see the successes and the failures that we can glean and learn and say, hey, we're not going to make the same mistakes. And this is what we resolve to do today. And the first thought is from verse number two, from the term works. Would you say work with me? Work. Say it again. Work. And one more time, please. Work. It says, I know thy works. As I was meditating here in this passage, here's the thought I want to relate to you. We will zealously serve the Lord because we love God. We will zealously serve the Lord because we love God. As you can imagine, Paul was zealously promoting and preaching the good news of Christ and the word of God in the city of Ephesus, and and scores of people were saved, hundreds, maybe even thousands. The Bible says in Acts chapter 19 that the whole region heard the message Paul preached. So the word got around to these some 250,000 people, and they were out zealously and courageously and passionately serving Jesus. But I want you to know this, that, that in each of these cases, the Bible says that God knows. So God knows what we are doing and why we are doing what we're doing. In other words, God knows the heart behind what we're doing. God knows the motive of why we're doing everything that we're doing. God knows the motive of why we're preaching. God knows the motive of why we're serving. God knows the motive of of why we're doing everything that we're doing here today. God knows the motive why you're here today or why you're watching online or listening online. God knows the motive in which I am preaching today and the motive why you're listening. We will zealously serve the Lord. Why? Because we love God. If you truly love God, then you're going to zealously serve God. This term works. It gives this idea of somebody going out into the fields and toiling and laboring. Have you ever planted a garden before? Most of us here today are not farmers, so most of us probably don't have a tractor, and we're not out plowing these fields upon fields upon fields of of soil to plant corn and to harvest it and to go sell it or to give it to the cattle. But we can get this idea that we go into a garden or a little flower bed and we would place seeds there and we would place the the cucumber seed or the watermelon seed or the pumpkin seed and we would place them there. That's where this idea, this term works. They were toiling. They were doing these acts of service and deeds to honor their Lord. Today, when we serve God, there's so many different ways we can serve him. We are called to do it with a motive that we love God. You don't do it because I ask you or the leadership asks you to do it. You do it because God loves you and you love God. But as we go through this passage today, I'm going to be sharing, I'm going to be asking some heart-riching questions. And it's for me too. Are you serving God because you have to? Are you serving God out of routine and ritual? Or are you serving God simply because you love him? Why are you here today? Why are you listening online? Are you doing it because it's just a routine thing to do? Or are you here today, are you listening online because you love God and you want to gain in your understanding of him and you want to draw closer to him and allow him to be more conformed or you to be more conformed to his image? 
Listen, we will zealously serve the Lord because we love God. These people, man, they love God, and he was praising them. He was giving them a message of commendation. Hey, I know your works. He says, I know why you're doing what you're doing. You're out there. You're serving God. But at some point along the way, that generation of, of the day Paul was in Acts chapter 19 until the generation that, that John is on the island of Patmos, at some point in those 30-some years, Something transitioned. Something happened. They were no longer doing the service because they loved God. They were doing the service because it was just the routine thing to do. Do you love God? Let me ask you something. Do you love God more than your family? Do you love God more than your brothers or sisters? Do you love God more than your spouse, your husband, your wife? Do you love God more than anything else in this world? If you do then we will have great zeal for our service to the Lord. Notice, notice, we are called to love God in this church. They were strong in doctrine, but they were weak in love. Notice the next phrase. It says, I know thy works and I know thy labor. Say labor with me. Labor, say it again. Labor, one more time, please. Labor. This is a very similar word to the word works. But I believe that, that it kind of gives an idea, that works would give an idea of service. But here, this labor, very similar, kind of the same idea of going out and toiling and working. And, and this would give the idea of that you're toiling in such a way that, that it, sometimes it can, it can bring pain because you're out there doing so much. And you can become so wearisome that you become exhausted in your work. I believe this is given the idea of they were out laboring and preaching and teaching the message of Christ and God's word. So here's the thought I want to relate to you. Here's our anthem, church. Not just we will zealously serve the Lord because we love God, but secondly, here it is. We will faithfully preach the word because we love God. We will faithfully preach the word because we love God. I want you to understand something. Or first, let me ask you this. Why do you think the church of Ephesus is called the mother church of the ancient church? Well, let me just, let me just share with you maybe a few reasons why, why it was. In Acts chapter 19, we see the apostle Paul, who is arguably the greatest Christian that has ever walked this earth. I mean, God was all over that man. When he was on the Damascus Road, God transformed his life, and he was a great persecutor of the church, and then he became one of the greatest proclaimers of the message of the church. And God used him. And he walks into the city, and just by him walking in the city, people are repenting and getting right with God. And we see that as he was out preaching and there for two years, that his time would, would come to an end. And also, by the way, just so you know, that there are three letters in the New Testament that really, to a certain degree, are devoted to the church of Ephesus. I don't know of any other church in this next two cha these chapters of Revelation that's devoted to. We see the, the letter of Paul to the Ephesians. That is the church of Ephesus. And we read those six chapters of God just, 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 just or the apostle Paul writing by inspiration of God, pouring out all these different things to the church. 
And we see that in First and Second Timothy, of course, somewhere along the way in Paul's journeys, Timothy comes to faith in Jesus Christ, and, and Paul begins to mentor him and shepherd him and disciple him, and then to train him to go out and preach likewise. And we see that at some point, Paul commissioned Timothy by the commandment of God to go to what city? Ephesus, and there to be the pastor. So we see Paul was leading the church, and now the guy who served and was mentored who served under Paul and was mentored by Paul, is now serving that church. And then we see the last remaining and youngest disciple, John, was the leader of that church, the pastor. Ephesus had mighty leadership. Some of the greatest leaders throughout church history, Paul, Timothy, and John. So it's no wonder they... They were so mighty in doctrine. It's no wonder they were so well-versed in scripture. It's no wonder that they knew the word of God, that they could open up God's word in the Old Testament and, and what they knew of to be the New Testament, or at least what they had access to, and to be able to say, hey, this is what the doctrine of salvation is. This is what the doctrine of the second coming of Christ is. This is what the doctrine of justification is. This, and they could go on and on and on, and they could open up God's word. They were so well-versed because they had such great theologians for leaders. And as Paul was preaching in Acts chapter 19, we see he didn't, hold, he didn't hold anything back. They were out preaching that, hey, those false idols were idols and they weren't worth worshiping. There was only one God worth worshiping and his name is Jesus. And he came and lived among us and he died on the cross. He lived a sinless life and he rose from the grave. And now all those who put their faith and trust in him can receive salvation. And Timothy took the baton and preached and preached and preached and then... John comes on about probably a few, some say maybe several years later, but we know that the book of Ephesians was written in around 60 AD, and this book that, that John is receiving by the vision of Christ is on the island of Patmos around 95 AD, so, so about 30, 35 years, maybe 40 years has transpired since Paul went into to Acts in, in Ephesus in Acts 19, and at some point along the way, the generation that was on fire for God and loved God and was preaching God's word, not out of duty, but out of love, they went on to be with the Lord. And so the next generation came on. And while they could dot every doctrinal I and cross every doctrinal T, they weren't teaching and preaching out of love. They were teaching and preaching out of duty. So today, let, let us understand this. As we think about the church of Ephesus, we are called to faithfully preach the word of God. All the whole council, all of it, from Genesis to Malachi, and from Matthew to Revelation, and we are called not to hold anything back. But let me ask you this. In your conversations with people that you have, in your Sunday school class or class that you might be teaching or have taught, or in, in training your children in the ways of righteousness and of Christ, are you teaching and preaching God's word to all of them because it's your duty? Or are you doing it out of your love for Jesus Christ? Are you going out and sharing the gospel of Christ because it's something that you just, you're commanded to do, so you're just going to do it grudgingly? Or are you going out and doing it because you want to see the lost come to know the loving God that you know? We can learn from this church. We must faithfully preach the word because we love God 
We will zealously serve the Lord because we love God. This section is all about loving God. Do you love God? Do you love God more than anything else in this life? Remember, the church of Ephesus was strong in doctrine, but they were weak in love. May I draw your attention to the next phrase here? Remember, the whole idea of I know should be considered with all of these things here. It says, I know thy works, I know thy labor, and it says, I know thy patience. Say patience with me. Patience, say it again. Patience, and one more time, please. Patience. Notice in verse number three, it says patience again. It says, and has born, it says you have borne and have patience, and for my name's sake, you have labored and you have not fainted. So we see patience is mentioned twice here. And it goes on in verse number two to talk about how, how, you cannot, that, that, how thou canst not bear them which are evil. That you've had patience. These people, they had patience. This term patience, when you study this word in verse number two and verse number three and in other portions of the New Testament, it gives this idea of cheerful or hopeful endurance and constancy. It means enduring patiently and continually waiting for what's to come. So here's the thought I want to share with you. Here's the third anthem. Here's the third creed and third declaration and lesson we can learn from this church. We will patiently endure trials because we love God. We will patiently endure trials because we love God. Now, I know that all of us think that we have gone through trials, and and we have. We have gone through trials. But understand this, that when Paul went to Ephesus... He preached in such a way that they dragged him and the others to this big old amphitheater and wanted to kill him. Understand that. Understand that when John was in this city, he was preaching God's word in such a way that Domitian was in leadership and control over Rome, and Domitian did not like what he was preaching. And so he took at his word, he took John, and he exiled him to an island of isolation. That is a trial of your faith. And so my question for you is this. If you were drugged to, ins- to, a, to a big old amphitheater or, or a coliseum to be killed because you were serving Jesus and preaching his faith, would you still love him? Let me ask you something. Would you still love God if you were exiled to an island there to talk to nobody but a bunch of criminals? Would you still love God then? When your loved one passes away, will you still love God then? When you go through a trial... When you experience death or turmoil or some type of earthly tribulation, will you still love God? Remember what what the writer of Hebrews said in, in, in Hebrews chapter 12? He said these words. He says, wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. After speaking about Hebrews 11, the great hall of faith, all these different ones mentioned. He says, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us and let us run with patience. Patience, my friend, the race that is set before us. I like what one preacher said. He said, the Christian life is not a sprint, it's a marathon, and it is. When we come to know Jesus Christ as Savior, we shouldn't just sprint as fast as we can to the finish line. We need to develop a pace that will allow us to consistently run that race and preach the gospel and disciple those who come to know him and to do the work of the ministry. And along the way, you're going to experience trials. Along the way, you're going to experience backlash for preaching the word and your faith. And so when that time comes, it is important that we stand now and we declare in this moment 
that no matter what transpires in my life, I'm going to love God. James chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, uses the same word, patience, again. It's just knowing this, that the trying of your faith works patience. Why would, why would God call Paul to go to Ephesus to have him dragged to an amphitheater for people who want to kill him? Why would God call John to go to Ephesus only to find himself in the Aegean Sea in an island called Patmos for preaching the word? Why would God do that? God did that because he knew that Paul and John could handle that trial in such a way that they would reflect the glory back to God. Why does God allow trials to come in your life? God allows certain trials to be to be placed on your shoulders because God knows that you're able to handle those trials by his good grace and his good mercy and love and that you will reflect and direct that glory back to God himself. We will patiently endure trials because we love God. And then verse four of James one says, but, we, but let patience have her perfect work. That is the work of completion. God allows us to go through these things and tries us because he wants to make us more like him that we may be perfect or complete and entire, wanting nothing. That is, when we come to a place in our lives, when we know that God is all we need, we will have no other needs. We will patiently endure trials because we love God. Do you love God today? We will faithfully preach the word of God because we love God. Do you love God today? We will zealously serve the Lord because we love God. Do you love God, church? If you love God, say amen. Amen. Amen, amen. Remember, the church of Ephesus was strong in doctrine, but weak in love. And the message is simple. Two words, love God. But now, now, we see in verse 2, and in addition to verse 6, a fourth anthem that we can declare from the pulpits of our churches and our church here in Roanoke. Notice it says this. It says, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not and has found them liars. Now, now look at verse six. It says, we'll jump a few verses ahead. It says, but this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, there's been a lot of discussion with who these apostles were and who these Nicolaitans were. But let me just summarize it. They were false teachers. And so here's the thought that we need to remind ourselves today. We will compassionately reject false teaching because we love God. We will compassionately reject false teaching because we love God. Notice the term apostles. Would you say apostle with me? Apostle. One more time, please. Apostle. This word apostle, it means one who is sent. And and when we think of an apostle today, it's just it's somebody like a missionary who is sent to go overseas or to go someplace oh, to a town and to share the gospel and to share the word of God. But here in this context, we most likely this is most likely to be viewed as an apostle who has been sent by Jesus Christ directly, like the apostle John and the apostle Paul and some of these others. And we see that, that in this time in the church of Ephesus, remember, they were mighty in doctrine. They understood the word of God and they tried these apostles and these Nicolaitans, these false teachers, and they put them to the test. 
Christ. And they discovered that these people were declaring that they were coming in the name of Jesus Christ and their message was of God. But as they sifted that message through God's word, they realized it was not of God. So what's the message for us today? Whenever somebody declares, I have a message from God, I have a message from Jesus, we take God's word and we sift that message through this book right here. And if it doesn't line up with this book, we declare that they are a false prophet and a false teacher or a false apostle. The same goes for the Nicolaitans. Now, there's a lot of discussion about who these Nicolaitans were, but, but long story short, we don't really know. We don't know. But what we do know is that their deeds were hated by God. The Bible doesn't say that God hated them specifically, but it says that he hated their works. And understand this, God is angry with the wicked every day. God wants all men to come to repentance and to come to faith. But the Bible says that, that, that God will turn every nation who doesn't believe in him into hell. Remember the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7? He says that you will know these people are false teachers and prophets by their works. And so they saw the deeds of these Nicolaitans. They saw the deeds of these apostles. They, they heard the messages and, and, and lined it up with God's word and, and realized it wasn't lining up. And so they declared that they were falsified messengers of God. In Matthew chapter 24, we see that Jesus was on the Mount of Olives speaking that great Olivet Discourse. And in verse 5 and verse 24, he's, he's emphasizing that, that as his return draws closer... To establish his kingdom and to return physically on this earth, that there will be many false teachers and false Christ that will arise. And I am I'm inclined to believe that, that the closer we get to Christ's return, the more these false prophets will come because Satan will realize his time is getting shorter and shorter and shorter. And in the tribulational period, as we'll study later on, is a time that when he unleashes everything that he has and he throws the Hail Mary, as to say. And then in verse John chapter 4. The Bible tells us that we are called to try these spirits, to test them, to see if they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. And then in verse number three, the Bible says that every spirit that confesses Jesus, that doesn't confess Jesus has come in the flesh, that he's Christ, that he's a son of God. The Bible says that that person is an antichrist, not the antichrist, but he has the spirit of Antichrist. In other words, somebody who is opposing the work of God, opposing the gospel of Christ, and opposing Christ himself. So listen, the choice is simple. You heard it earlier just a few moments ago. You're either for Christ or you're against him. You either love God or you hate God. There is no in-between, my friends. You're either on the side of truth or you're on the side of falsified truth. You're either on the side of, of truth or the side of error. Which side are you on today? By God's grace... May God help us to firmly but compassionately reject false teaching when it arises. Did you hear about the progressive pastor? He opened up the Bible and he said, class, please turn to 2 Thessalonians. And the class said, well, well, brother, didn't you mean 2 Thessalonians? He said, nope, I said 2 Thessalonians. They said, well, well, is that in the New Testament or the Old Testament? He said, it's in neither because we don't believe in those anymore. And he said, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we are going to learn today that Jesus is not the Son of God. 
We're going to learn today from 2 Babylonians chapter 2 that Jesus is not the only way to heaven. We're going to learn today that, that there is not a heaven, there is not a hell. In fact, everybody goes to paradise when they die. That's what we're going to learn from 2 Babylonians chapter 2. And then the one kid raised his hand and said, well, sir, all that is is a bunch of baloney. Come on now. That'll preach today. We see that there's going to be false teachers that will arise in our day just like they did then. And when they arise, we declare the word of God to be true and nothing else to be true other than that. Why would we reject false teaching? Well, because we love God and because we love his word. You know, I find it interesting that, that people that work at a bank, a banker, they don't send them off to banking university so that they can study what a counterfeit Mr. Benjamin is. That, you know, a $100 bill, in case you didn't know what that was. Uh, so they get out all the counterfeit Mr. Benjamins and they analyze it from the front to the back. They don't really do that at all, actually. In fact, they, they are so used to working with the real deal that when they see the falsified counterfeit dollar or a hundred dollar bill, they can spot it. How will you spot false teaching? By getting into the word of God. That's why it's so important that you're not just in it when we gather together here, but you're in it every single day in your house and your family, and you're in it every day, every week, every month, every year, so that when falsified truth arises, you can spot it, just like you can spot a false Mr. Benjamin. We will compassionately reject false teaching because we love God. We will patiently endure trials because we love God. We will faithfully preach the word because we love God. And we will zealously serve the Lord because we love God. But now let me share with, share with you from verses 4 and 5. Here we see that so far we've seen kind of like the commendation. Verses 1, 2, and 3, and verse number 6 is the commendation. That is the word of praise from Jesus Christ to this church. But then we see in verse 4 is the message of condemnation. And in verse number five is the message of correction. And as we see these verses, we see the theme of this church, that they were strong in doctrine, but weak in love. As we read these next two verses, I want to share this fifth and final anthem that we can learn from this church. We will sincerely repent of our sins because we love God. We will sincerely repent of our sins because we love God. Look at verse four. The Bible says, nevertheless, he says, I, I, I said all these things, but now I want to transition and I want to tell you something that I'm not in favor of at your house. It says, nevertheless, I have somewhat against you because you have left, not lost, but left your first love. There was a day in this church that they loved God first. When Paul was there, man, they were just full of zeal and full of passion and full of, full of courage to go out and share the message of the gospel. They were, they were, they were out and they were, they were spotting the false teachers. They were doing all those things, but there came a time in their life when they ceased to love God like they used to. Maybe it was the generation that passed on and now the second generation no longer love God like their parents did. And we see that God is summoning them to repentance in verse 5. It says, remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen and repent. Two times the word repent is mentioned in this passage. And he says, if you do not repent, all, all pretty much is what he's saying is that if you don't repent, then I will make your church cease to exist. God is sovereign and church being born and church is dying. He is sovereign. 
And perhaps some churches die and cease to exist because they will cease to teach the word of God or they'll cease to repent of the sins that they've committed. Sin is serious. It is serious when we as individuals sin as when we as a church sin. Because when we as individuals sin, sometimes that sin creeps into the church. And here he says repent. And the repentance is just simply this. It just simply means a change of mentality. And that is they were being called to change their mindset of how they were not loving God like they used to. When we sin, we are called to repent of it, to change our mind about it. Notice, I want to read what one commentator said about this church, and I thought it was just brilliantly put. It says, Jesus' letter to the church of Ephesus contains Jesus' famous rebuke. You've left your first love. The believers at Ephesus, struggling beneath the weight of a godless and immoral culture, had maintained the letter of the law, but had lost the spirit of the law. Jesus commended them for their hard work, perseverance, rejection of false teaching, and hatred of sin. But he was grieved that they had become routine in their service for him rather than serve him with the passion they once had. Their actions were there, but their hearts were not. Jesus' words to the believers in Ephesus should, should challenge all servants of the Lord. It is easy to get caught up in the busyness of ministry, church work, or volunteering and not realize our passion for the Lord has cooled. We are no longer propelled into service by love, but by some other selfish or worldly motivation. We may think God doesn't mind as long as we are outwardly obeying, but he does mind. In fact, it hurts him, and it violates the greatest commandment of loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Jesus gave the church of Ephesus time to repent, and he gives us time as well. Every moment we, every moment we resist his call to humble ourselves and return to our first love is one more moment that we forfeit the love, joy, and peace he offers. Jesus was so concerned about the church at Ephesus that he dictated a letter through the apostle John. And he is so concerned about the church of today that he has made certain this letter was pre preserved for us in our generation. Is there any sin in your life that you need to repent of, church? Notice, this is not a message to the sinful pagans of Ephesus. This is a message for the household of God. If there's any sin in your life, it is time to repent and to lay it aside. Verse number seven is a verse that, that we will see very similar words throughout chapter two and three. And it says, he that has an ear to hear, let him hear what the spirit says to the church. Hey, listen, if you close your ears to the word of God, you're gonna be in trouble. If you close your ears to the message of God's word, one day it will be your ruin. So let us listen and let us heed and let us hearken to the word of God. But notice what it says. It says, to him that overcomes... Who are the overcomers? You're an overcomer. I'm an overcomer. This word overcome, all it simply means is somebody who has gained victory. How do we have victory? We have victory because 2,000 years ago, God himself left his throne and walked among us here on this earth. And he lived a sinless life and he died a sinner's death on the cross. And then he rose victoriously from the grave and he ascended up to glory and he's coming back again. And my dear friends, because he overcame death, hell, and the grave, so can we. And the Bible says here, it, in fact, it mentions the tree of life. The first time that's mentioned is in Genesis chapter 2. 
And the last time it's mentioned is in, Gen- is in Revelation chapter 22, where there will be the tree of life there in the paradise of God in heaven, if you will. The term paradise is only mentioned three times in the New Testament. In Luke chapter 23, with the thief on the cross. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, with Paul being caught up to paradise. And then here in Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, and it's a synonym for heaven. And we see that heaven is going to be a place of not just the presence of God, but also the tree of life. If you partake of that tree, you'll live forever. But if you partake of the gospel of Jesus Christ, in a sense, kind of similar to the tree of life, if you partake of the bread of life that came down, you'll live forever. Jesus is our bread of life. He is the manna that fell down from glory. If you are in Christ, you are an overcomer. John 16, verse 33 says that in this world, we're going to have tribulation, but do not be afraid. Do not be full of fear. Because Christ said he has overcome the world. In 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, we see that it is our faith in Jesus Christ that gives us the victory that overcomes the world. So listen, you're either today an overcomer or an undercomer. What do I mean by that, you might ask? Well, if you're an overcomer, you're going to heaven. But if you're an undercomer, you're going to hell. The choice is yours. You either hate God or you love him. You either love everything else in this world more than you love God or you love God more than everything else in this world. We will sincerely repent of our sins because we love God. We will compassionately reject false teaching because we love God. We will patiently endure trials because we love God. We will faithfully preach the word because we love God. And we will zealously serve the Lord because we love God. The church of Ephesus was strong in doctrine, but weak in love. God has called us to be strong in knowing what we believe and why we believe it in the doctrine of the word of God. But he's also called us to be strong in love, to be mighty in word and in love. Love God is the message. I close with this question. Do you love God? Hey guys, thanks so much for tuning in to the Jumpstart Your Faith podcast channel. As a token of my appreciation for you listening today, I would like to give you my free ebook devotional called Jumpstart Your Faith, 30 Days to a Renewed Faith in Christ. Just go to www.pastorbrianratliff.com to download it. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast channel to listen to more messages like today's. And if these messages have been helpful to you, please leave a review. If I could be of any help in your spiritual walk, please let me know by emailing me at pastorbrianratliff at yahoo.com. And one last thing, if you're in Roanoke, please consider joining us for one of our worship services at Clearbrook Baptist Church. Until next time, may God's blessings be upon you and have a great week.